Greetings, listeners. This is I, once again, D.B. Spitzer, here to talk to you about Black Clock Audio Tales. Yes, it is February, and that is the month of Jules Verne, and brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their cool new Highland cow slipper. It's all shaggy like a Muppet. It's like brown Muppet fur or a extra woolly Highland cow. Look fashionable. Look cool. Keep warm. Bunnyslippers.com. Hey, did you know that we're talking about Jules Verne? And did you know that you can find Black Clock Audio Tales on the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram? Mostly Facebook and Instagram these days. I've never been big on Twitter. And let's see what else. You can listen to Jules Verne stories this month on Black Clock Audio Tales, as I said. And also we will be talking about... Uh, the Cthulhu Mythos and Egyptology and Nephrim Ka. Maybe a little bit of Naralethhotep will sneak in there as well. All right, thank you so much. And remember, there's going to be probably something by David Heath of Dave's Corner of the Universe and eventually Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. And also, we will be having probably some experts on the show talking about Jules Verne at some point in time in this month. And let's not forget, I don't know, the best show there is, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, which is our monthly show, last Tuesday of the month. And if you want to hear more about the Cthulhu Mythos, go through our back catalog or check out pgttcm.com or go to podbean.pgttcm.com. Find the RSS feed. Find the show notes. Find out where the store is and how to help support the show so we can have further episodes in the future. And let's not forget, you could go to paypal.me M-E, slash p-g-t-t-c-m and donate a buck or five or twenty or fifty or a million dollars and help the show grow. I mean, we're doing pretty good right now, but we could have another Beowulf month, and who wants that? Not me. All right, let's get on with the show. Let's have some Jules Verne, and let's go to that underground city. All right, here we go. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Underground City by Jules Verne, Chapter 12. Nell adopted. A couple of hours later, Harry, still unconscious, and the child in a very feeble state, were brought to the cottage by Jack Ryan and his companions. The old overman listened to the account of their adventures, while Madge attended with the utmost care to the wants of her son and of the poor creature whom he had rescued from the pit. Harry imagined her a mere child, but she was a maiden of the age of fifteen or sixteen years. She gazed at them with vague and wondering eyes, and the thin face, drawn by suffering, the pallid complexion, which light could never have tinged, and the fragile, slender figure, gave her an appearance at once singular and attractive. Jack Ryan declared that she seemed to him to be an uncommonly interesting kind of ghost. It must have been due to the strange and peculiar circumstances under which her life hitherto had been led that she scarcely seemed to belong to the human race. Her countenance was of a very uncommon cast, and her eyes, hardly able to bear the lamplight in the cottage, glanced around in a confused and puzzled way, as if all were new to them. As this singular being reclined on Madge's bed and awoke to consciousness as from a long sleep, the old Scotchwoman began to question her a little. "'What do they call you, my dear?' said she. "'Nell,' replied the girl. "'Do you feel anything the matter with you, Nell?' "'I'm hungry. I've eaten nothing since—since—' since. Nell uttered these few words like one unused to speak much. 
they were in the Gaelic language, which was often spoken by Simon and his family. Madge immediately brought her some food. She was evidently famished. It was impossible to say how long she might have been in that pit. "'How many days have you been down there, dearie?' inquired Madge. Nell made no answer. She seemed not to understand the question. "'How many days do you think?' "'Days?' repeated Nell, as though the word had no meaning for her, and she shook her head to signify entire want of comprehension. Madge took her hand and stroked it caressingly. "'How old are you, my lassie?' she asked, smiling kindly at her. Nell shook her head again. "'Yes, yes,' continued Madge. "'How many years old?' "'Years,' replied Nell. She seemed to understand that word no better than days. Simon, Harry, Jack, and the rest looked on with an air of mingled compassion, wonder, and sympathy. The state of this poor thing, clothed in a miserable garment of coarse woolen stuff, seemed to impress them painfully. Harry, more than all the rest, seemed attracted by the very peculiarity of this poor stranger. He drew near, took Nell's hand from his mother, and looked directly at her, while something like a smile curved her lip. Nell, he said, Nell, away down there in the mine, were you all alone? Alone, alone, cried the girl, raising herself hastily. Her features expressed terror. Her eyes, which had appeared to soften as Harry looked at her, became quite wild again. Alone, repeated she, alone, and she fell back on the bed, as though deprived of all strength. The poor baron is too weak to speak to us, said Madge, when she had adjusted the pillows. After a good rest and a little more food, she will be stronger. Come away, Simon and Harry and all the rest of you, and let her go to sleep. So Nell was left alone, and in a very few minutes slept profoundly. This event caused a great sensation, not only in the coal mines, but in Stirlingshire, and ultimately throughout the kingdom. The strangeness of the story was exaggerated. The affair could not have made more commotion had they found the girl enclosed in the solid rock, like one of those anti-Devellian creatures who have occasionally been released by a stroke of the pickaxe from their stony prison. Nell became a fashionable wonder without knowing it. Superstitious folks made her story a new subject for legendary marvels, and were inclined to think, as Jack Ryan told Harry, that Nell was the spirit of the mines. "'Be it so, Jack,' said the young man, "'but at any rate she is the good spirit. It can have been none but she who brought us bread and water when we were shut up down there, and as to the bad spirit, who must still be in the mine, we'll catch him some day.' Of course, James Starr had been at once informed of all this, and came, as soon as the young girl had sufficiently recovered her strength, to see her and endeavor to question her carefully. She appeared ignorant of nearly everything relating to life, and although evidently intelligent, was wanting in many elementary ideas, such as time, for instance. She had never been used to its division, and the words signifying hours, days, months, and years were unknown to her. Her eyes, accustomed to the night, were pained by the glare of the electric discs, but in the dark her sight was wonderfully keen. The pupil dilated in a remarkable manner, and she could see where to others there appeared profound obscurity. It was certain that her brain had never received any impression of the outer world, that her eyes had never looked beyond the mine and that these somber depths had been all the world to her. The poor girl probably knew not that there was a sun and stars, towns and counties, a mighty universe composed of myriads of worlds. But until she comprehended the significance of words at present conveying no precise meaning to her, it was impossible to ascertain what she knew. As to whether or not Nell had lived alone in the recesses of New Aberfoyle, James Starr was obliged to remain uncertain. Indeed, any allusion to the subject excited evident alarm 
in the mind of this strange girl. Either Nell could not or would not reply to questions, but that some secret existed in connection with the place, which she could have explained, was manifest. "'Should you like to stay with us? Should you like to go back where we found you?' asked James Starr. "'Oh, yes,' exclaimed the maiden, in answer to his first question. But a cry of terror was all she seemed able to say to the second. James Starr, as well as Simon and Harry Ford, could not help feeling a certain amount of uneasiness with regard to this persistent silence. They found it impossible to forget all that had appeared so inexplicable at the time they made the discovery of the coal mine, and, although that was three years ago, and nothing new had happened, they always expected some fresh attack on the part of the invisible enemy. They resolved to explore the mysterious well, and did so, well armed and in considerable numbers. But nothing suspicious was to be seen. The shaft communicated with the lower stages of the crypt, hallowed out in the carboniferous bed. Many a time did James Starr, Simon, and Harry talk over these things. If one or more malevolent beings were concealed in the coal pit and there concocted mischief, Nell surely could have warned them of it. Yet she said nothing. The slightest allusion to her past life brought on such fits of violent emotion that it was judged best to avoid the subject for the present. Her secret would certainly escape her by and by. By the time Nell had been a fortnight in the cottage, she had become a most intelligent and zealous assistant to old Madge. It was clear that she instinctively felt she should remain in the dwelling where she had been so charitably received, and perhaps never dreamt of quitting it. The family was all in all to her, and to the good folks themselves, Nell had seemed an adopted child from the moment when she first came beneath their roof. Nell was in truth a charming creature. Her new mode of existence added to her beauty, for these were no doubt the first happy days of her life, and her heart was full of gratitude toward those to whom she owed them. Madge felt towards her as a mother would. The old woman doted upon her. In short, she was beloved by everyone. Jack Ryan only regretted one thing, which was that he had not saved her himself. Friend Jack often came to the cottage. He sang, and Nell, who had never heard singing before, admired it greatly. But anyone might see that she preferred to Jack's songs the graver conversation of Harry, from whom, by degrees, she learnt truths concerning the outer world, of which hitherto she had known nothing. It must be said that, since Nell had appeared in her own person, Jack Ryan had been obliged to admit that his belief in hobgoblins was in a measure weakened. A couple of months later, his credulity experienced a further shock. About that time, Harry unexpectedly made a discovery which, in part at least, accounted for the apparition of the fire maidens among the ruins of Dundonald Castle at Irving. During several days he had been engaged in exploring the remote galleries of the prodigious excavations toward the south. At last, he scrambled with difficulty up a narrow passage, which branched off through the upper rock. To his great astonishment, he suddenly found himself in the open air. The passage, after ascending obliquely to the surface of the ground, led out directly among the ruins of Dundonald Castle. There was, therefore, a communication between New Aberfoyle and the hills crowned by this ancient castle. The upper entrance to this gallery, being completely concealed by stones and brushwood, was invisible from without. At the time of their search, therefore, the magistrates had been able to discover nothing. A few days afterwards, James Starr, guided by Harry, came himself to inspect this curious natural opening into the coal mine. Well, said he, here is enough to convince the most superstitious among us. Farewell to all their brownies, goblins, and fire maidens now. I hardly think, Mr. Starr, we ought to congratulate ourselves, replied Harry. Whatever it is we have instead of these things, it can't be better, and may be worse than they are. 
That's true, Harry, said the engineer. But what's to be done? It's plain that, whatever the beings are who hide in the mine, they reach the surface of the earth by this passage. No doubt it was the light of the torches waved by them during that dark and stormy night which attracted the Motala toward the rocky coast, and, like the wreckers of former days, they would have plundered the unfortunate vessel, had it not been for Jack Ryan and his friends. Anyhow, so far, it is evident, and here is the mouth of the den. As to its occupants, the question is, are they here still? I say yes, because Nell trembles when we mention them. Yes, because Nell will not, or dare not, speak about them, answered Harry, in a tone of decision. Harry was surely in the right. Had these mysterious Denzians of the pit abandoned it, or ceased to visit the spot, what reason could the girl have for keeping silence? James Starr could not rest till he had penetrated this mystery. He foresaw the whole future of the new excavations must depend upon it. Renewed and strict precautions were therefore taken. The authorities were informed of the discovery of the entrance. Watchers were placed among the ruins of the castle. Harry himself lay hid several nights in the thickets of brushwood which clothed the hillside. Nothing was discovered. No human being emerged from the opening. So most people came to the conclusion that the villains had been finally dislodged from the mine, and that, as to Nell, they must suppose her to be dead at the bottom of the shaft where they had left her. While it remained unworked, the mine had been a safe enough place of refuge, secure from all search or pursuit. But now, circumstances being altered, it became difficult to conceal this lurking place, and it might reasonably be hoped they were gone, and that nothing for the future was to be dreaded from them. James Starr, however, could not feel sure about it. Neither could Harry be satisfied on the subject, often repeating, Nell has clearly been mixed up with all this secret business. If she had nothing more to fear, why should she keep silence? It cannot be doubted that she is happy with us. She likes us all. She adores my mother. Her absolute silence as to her former life, when by speaking out she might benefit us, proves to me that some awful secret, which she dares not reveal, weighs on her mind. It may also be that she believes it better for us, as well as for herself, that she should remain mute in a way otherwise so unaccountable. In consequence of these opinions, it was agreed by common consent to avoid all allusion to the maiden's former mode of life. One day, however, Harry was led to make known to Nell what James Starr, his father, mother, and himself, believed they owed to her interference. It was a fete day. The miners made holiday on the surface of the county of Stirling, as well as in its subterranean domains. Parties of holiday-makers were moving about in all directions. Songs resounded in many places beneath the sonorous vaults of New Aberfoyle. Harry and Nell left the cottage and slowly walked along the left bank of Loch Malcolm. Then the electric brilliance darted less vividly, and the rays were interrupted with fantastic effect by the sharp angles of the picturesque rocks which supported the dome. This imperfect light suited Nell, to whose eyes a glare was very unpleasant. Nell, said Harry, your eyes are not fit for daylight yet, and could not bear the brightness of the sun. Indeed, they could not, replied the girl, if the sun is such as you describe it to me, Harry. I cannot, by any words, Nell, give you an idea either of his splendor or of the beauty of that universe which your eyes have never beheld. But tell me, is it really possible that, since the day when you were born in the depths of the coal mine, you never once have been up to the surface of the earth? Never once, Harry, said she. I do not believe that, even as an infant, my father or mother ever carried me thither. I am sure I should have retained some impression of the open air if they had. I believe you would, answered Harry. Long ago, Nell, many children used to live altogether in the mine. Communication was then difficult, and I have met with more than one young person, quite as ignorant as you are of things above ground. But now the railway through our great tunnel takes us in a few minutes 
to the upper regions of our country. I long now to hear you say, Come, Harry, my eyes can bear daylight, and I want to see the sun. I want to look upon the works of the Almighty. I shall soon say so, Harry, I hope, replied the girl. I shall soon go with you to the world above. And yet, what are you going to say, Nell? hastily cried Harry. Can you possibly regret having quitted that gloomy abyss in which you spent your early years, and whence we drew you half dead? No, Harry, answered Nell. I was only thinking that darkness is beautiful, as well as light. If you but knew what eyes accustomed to its depth can see, shades flit by, which one longs to follow. Circles mingle and intertwine, and one could gaze on them forever. Black hollows, full of indefinite gleams of radiance, lie deep at the bottom of the mine. And then the voice-like sounds, Ah, Harry, one must have lived down there to understand what I feel, what I can never express. And were you not afraid, Nell, all alone there? It was just when I was alone that I was not afraid. Nell's voice altered slightly as she said these words. However, Harry thought he might press the subject a little further. So he said, But one might be easily lost in these great galleries. Nell, were you not afraid of losing your way? Oh, no, Harry. For a long time I had known every turn of the new mine. Did you never leave it? Yes, now and then, answered the girl with a little hesitation. Sometimes I have been as far as the old mine at Aberfoyle. So you knew our old cottage. The cottage? Oh, yes. But the people who live there, I only saw it at a great distance. They were my father and mother, said Harry, and I was there too. We have always lived there. We never would give up the old dwelling. Perhaps it would have been better if you had, murmured the maiden. Why so, Nell? Was it not just because we were obstinately resolved to remain that we ended by discovering the new vein of coal? And did not that discovery lead to the happy result of providing work for a large population and restoring them to ease and comfort? And did it not enable us to find you, Nell, to save your life and to give you the love of all our hearts? Ah, yes, for me indeed it is well, whatever may happen, replied Nell earnestly. For others, who can tell? What do you mean? Oh, nothing, nothing. But it used to be very dangerous at that time to go into the new cutting. Yes, very dangerous indeed. Harry, once some rash people made their way into these chasms. They got a long, long way. They were lost. They were lost, said Harry, looking at her. Yes, lost, repeated Nell in a trembling voice. They could not find their way out. And there, cried Harry, they were imprisoned during eight long days. They were at the point of death, Nell, and, but for a kind and charitable being, an angel perhaps, sent by God to help them, who secretly brought them a little food, but for a mysterious guide who afterwards led to them their deliverers, they never would have escaped from that living tomb. And how do you know about that? demanded the girl. Because those men were James Starr, my father, and myself, Nell. Nell looked up hastily, seized the young man's hand, and gazed so fixedly into his eyes that his feelings were stirred to their depths. You were there? At last she uttered. I was indeed, said Harry, after a pause. And she to whom we owe our lives can have been none other than yourself, Nell. Nell hid her face in her hands without speaking. Harry had never seen her so much affected. Those who saved your life, Nell, added he in a voice tremulous with emotion, already owed theirs to you. Do you think they will ever forget it? End of chapter 12 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas The Underground City by Jules Verne Chapter 13 On the Revolving Ladder The mining operations at New Aberfoyle continued to be carried on very successfully. As a matter of course, the engineer, James Starr, as well as Simon Ford, the discoverers of this rich carboniferous region, shared largely in the profits. In time, Harry became a partner, but he never thought of quitting the cottage. 
He took his father's place as overman and diligently superintended the works of this colony of miners. Jack Ryan was proud and delighted at the good fortune which had befallen his comrade. He himself was getting on very well also. They frequently met, either at the cottage or at the works in the pit. Jack did not fail to remark the sentiments entertained by Harry towards Nell. Harry would not confess to them, but Jack only laughed at him when he shook his head and tried to deny any special interest in her. It must be noted that Jack Ryan had the greatest possible wish to be of the party when Nell should pay her first visit to the upper surface of the county of Stirling. He wished to see her wonder and admiration on first beholding the yet unknown face of nature. He very much hoped that Harry would take him with them when the excursion was made. As yet, however, the latter had made no proposal of the kind to him, which caused him to feel a little uneasy as to his intentions. One morning Jack Ryan was descending through a shaft which led from the surface to the lower regions of the pit. He did so by means of one of those ladders which, continually revolving by machinery, enabled persons to ascend and descend without fatigue. This apparatus had lowered him about a hundred and fifty feet, when at a narrow landing place he perceived Harry, who was coming up to his labors for the day. "'Well met, my friend,' cried Jack, recognizing his comrade by the light of the electric lamps. "'Ah, Jack,' replied Harry, "'I am glad to see you. I've got something to propose.' "'I can listen to nothing till you tell me how Nell is,' interrupted Jack Ryan. "'Nell is all right, Jack. So much so, in fact, that I hope in a month or six weeks to marry her, Harry?' "'Jack, you don't know what you are talking about.' "'Ah, that's very likely, but I know quite well what I shall do.' "'What will you do?' "'Marry her myself, if you don't, so look sharp,' laughed Jack. "'By St. Mungo, I think an immense deal of Bonnie Nell. "'A fine young creature like that who has been brought up in the mine "'is just the very wife for a miner. "'She is an orphan, so am I, and if you don't care much for her, "'and if she will have me—' "'Harry looked gravely at Jack, and let him talk on without trying to stop him. "'Don't you begin to feel jealous, Harry?' asked Jack in a more serious tone. "'Not at all,' answered Harry quietly. "'But if you don't marry Nell yourself, you surely can't expect her to remain a spinster.' "'I expect nothing,' said Harry. A movement of the ladder machinery now gave the two friends the opportunity, one to go up, the other down the shaft. However, they remained where they were. "'Harry,' quoth Jack, "'do you think I spoke in earnest just now about Nell?' "'No, that I don't, Jack.' "'Well, but now I will.' "'You speak in earnest?' "'My good fellow, I can tell you I am quite capable of giving a friend a bit of advice.' "'Let's hear, then, Jack.' "'Well, look here. You love Nell as heartily as she deserves. Old Simon, your father, and old Madge, your mother, both love her as if she were their daughter. Why don't you make her so in reality? Why don't you marry her?' "'Come, Jack,' said Harry. "'You are running on as if you knew how Nell felt on the subject.' "'Everybody knows that,' replied Jack. "'And therefore it is impossible to make you jealous of any of us.' But here goes the ladder again. I'm off. Stop a minute, Jack, cried Harry, detaining his companion, who was stepping onto the moving staircase. I say, you seem to mean me to take up my quarters here altogether. Do be serious and listen, Jack. I want to speak in earnest myself now. Well, I'll listen till the ladder moves again. Not a minute longer. Jack, resumed Harry, I need not pretend that I do not love Nell. I wish above all things to make her my wife. That's all right. "'But for the present I have scruples of conscience "'as to asking her to make me a promise which would be irrevocable.' "'What can you mean, Harry?' "'I mean just this, that, it being certain Nell has never been outside this coal-mine "'in the very depths of which she was born, "'it stands to reason that she knows nothing, "'and can comprehend nothing of what exists beyond it. "'Her eyes, yes, and perhaps also her heart, "'have everything yet to learn. "'Who can tell what her thoughts will be "'when perfectly new impressions shall be made upon her mind?' As yet she knows nothing of the world, and to me it would seem like deceiving her, if I led her to decide in ignorance upon choosing to remain all her life in the coal-mine. Do you understand me, Jack? Hem, yes, pretty well. What I understand best is that you are going to make me miss another turn of the ladder. Jack, replied Harry gravely, if this machinery were to stop altogether, if this landing-place were to fall beneath our feet, you must and shall hear what I have to say. Well done, Harry. That's how I like to be spoken to. Let's settle, then, that before you marry Nell, she shall go to school in Old Reeky. No, indeed, Jack. I am perfectly able myself to educate the person who is to be my wife. Sure, that will be a great deal better, Harry. But, first of all, resumed Harry, I wish that Nell should gain a real knowledge of the upper world. To illustrate my meaning, Jack, suppose you were in love with a blind girl, and someone said to you, in a month's time her sight will be restored. Would you not wait till after she was cured to marry her? 
Faith, to be sure I would, exclaimed Jack. Well, Jack, Nell is at present blind, and before she marries me, I wish her to see what I am, and what the life really is to which she would bind herself. In short, she must have daylight let in upon the subject. Well said, Harry, very well said indeed, cried Jack. Now I see what you are driving at. And when may we expect the operation to come off? In a month, Jack, replied Harry. Nell is getting used to the light of our reflectors. That is some preparation. In a month she will, I hope, have seen the earth and its wonders, the sky and its splendors. She will perceive that the limits of the universe are boundless. But while Harry was thus giving the rein to his imagination, Jack Ryan, quitting the platform, had leaped on the step of the moving machinery. Hello, Jack, where are you? Far beneath you, laughed the merry fellow. While you soar to the heights, I plunge into the depths. Fare ye well. Jack, returned Harry, himself laying hold of the rising ladder. Mind you say nothing about what I have been telling you. Not a word, shouted Jack, but I make one condition. What is that? That I may be one of the party when Nell's first excursion to the face of the earth comes off. So you shall, Jack, I promise you. A fresh throb of the machinery placed a yet more considerable distance between the friends. Their voices sounded faintly to each other. Harry, however, could still hear Jack shouting, I say, do you know what Nell will like better than either sun, moon, or stars after she's seen the whole of them? No, Jack. Why, you yourself, old fellow. Still you. Always you. And Jack's voice died away in a prolonged, Hurrah! Harry, after this, applied himself diligently, during all his spare time, to the work of Nell's education. He taught her to read and to write, and such rapid progress did she make, it might have been said that she learnt by instinct. Never did keen intelligence more quickly triumph over utter ignorance. It was the wonder of all beholders. Simon and Madge became every day more and more attached to their adopted child, whose former history continued to puzzle them a good deal. They plainly saw the nature of Harry's feelings towards her, and were far from displeased thereat. They recollected that Simon had said to the engineer on his first visit to the old cottage, "'How can our son ever think of marrying?' Where could a wife possibly be found suitable for a lad whose whole life must be passed in the depths of a coal mine? Well, now it seemed as if the most desirable companion in the world had been led to him by providence. Was not this like a blessing direct from heaven? So the old man made up his mind that, if the wedding did take place, the miners of New Aberfoyle should have a merry-making at Coal Town, which they would never during their lives forget. Simon Ford little knew what he was saying. It must be remarked that another person wished for this union of Harry and Nell as much as Simon did, and that was James Starr, the engineer. Of course he was really interested in the happiness of the two young people, but another motive, connected with wider interests, influenced him to desire it. It has been said that James Starr continued to entertain a certain amount of apprehension, although for the present nothing appeared to justify it. Yet that which had been might again be. This mystery about the new cutting. Nell was evidently the only person acquainted with it. Now, if fresh dangers were in store for the miners of Aberfoyle, how were they possibly to be guarded against, without so much as knowing the cause of them? Nell has persisted in keeping silence, said James Starr very often, but what she has concealed from others she will not long hide from her husband. Any danger would be danger to Harry as well as to the rest of us. Therefore a marriage which brings happiness to the lovers, and safety to their friends, will be a good marriage, if ever there is such a thing here below. Thus, not illogically, reasoned James Starr. He communicated his ideas to old Simon, who decidedly appreciated them. Nothing, then, appeared to stand in the way of the match. What, in fact, was there to prevent it? They loved each other. The parents deserved nothing better for their son. Harry's comrades envied his good fortune, but freely acknowledged that he deserved it. The maiden depended on no one else, and had but to give the consent of her own heart. Why, then, if there were none to place obstacles in the way of this union, why, as night came on and the labors of the day being over, the electric lights in the mine were extinguished, and all the inhabitants of Coal Town at rest within their dwellings, why did a mysterious form always emerge from the gloomier recesses of New Aberfoyle and silently glide through the darkness? What instinct guided this phantom with ease through passages so narrow as to appear to be impracticable? Why should the strange being, with eyes flashing through the deepest darkness, come cautiously creeping along the shores of Lake Malcolm, why so directly make his way towards Simon's cottage, yet so carefully as hitherto to avoid notice? Why, bending towards the windows, did he strive to catch, by listening, some fragment of the conversation within the closed shutters? And, on catching a few words, why did he shake his fist with a menacing gesture towards the calm abode, 
while from between his set teeth issued these words in muttered fury, She and he? Never, never. End of chapter 13. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan, St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Hogan. The Underground City by Jules Verne. Chapter 14. A Sunrise. A month after this, on the evening of the 20th of August, Simon Ford and Madge took leave, with all manner of good wishes, of four tourists who were setting forth from the cottage. James Starr, Harry, and Jack Ryan were about to lead Nell's steps over yet untrodden paths, and to show her the glories of nature by a light to which she was as yet a stranger. The excursion was to last for two days. James Starr, as well as Harry, considered that during these eight and forty hours spent above ground, the maiden would be able to see everything of which she must have remained ignorant in the gloomy pit. All the varied aspects of the globe, towns, plains, mountains, rivers, lakes, gulfs, and seas, would pass, panorama-like, before her eyes. In that part of Scotland lying between Edinburgh and Glasgow, Nature would seem to have collected and set forth specimens of every one of these terrestrial beauties. As to the heavens, they would be spread abroad as over the whole earth with their changeful clouds, serene or veiled moon, their radiant sun, and clustering stars. The expedition had been planned so as to combine a view of all these things. Simon and Madge would have been glad to go with Nell, but they never left their cottage willingly, and could not make up their minds to quit their subterranean home for a single day. James Starr went as an observer and philosopher, curious to note, from a psychological point of view, the novel impressions made upon Nell, perhaps also with some hope of detecting a clue to the mysterious events connected with her childhood. Harry, with a little trepidation, asked himself whether it was not possible that this rapid initiation into the things of the exterior world would change the maiden he had known and loved hitherto into quite a different girl. As for Jack Ryan, he was as joyous as a lark rising in the first beams of the sun. He only trusted that his gaiety would prove contagious and enliven his traveling companions, thus rewarding them for letting him join them. Nell was pensive and silent. James Starr had decided, very sensibly, to set off in the evening. It would be very much better for the girl to pass gradually from the darkness of night to the full light of day, and that would in this way be managed, since between midnight and noon she would experience the successive phases of shade and sunshine, to which her sight had to get accustomed. Just as they left the cottage, Nell took Harry's hand, saying, Harry, is it really necessary for me to leave the mine at all, even for these few days? Yes, it is, Nell, replied the young man. It is needful for both of us. But Harry, resumed Nell, ever since you found me, I have been as happy as I can possibly be. You have been teaching me. Why is that not enough? What am I going up there for? Harry looked at her in silence. Nell was giving utterance to nearly his own thoughts. My child, said James Starr, I can well understand the hesitation you feel, but it will be good for you to go with us. Those who love you are taking you, and they will bring you back again. Afterwards you will be free, if you wish it, to continue your life in the coal mine, like old Simon and Madge and Harry. But at least you ought to be able to compare what you give up with what you choose, then decide freely. Come, dear Nell, cried Harry. Harry, I am willing to follow you, replied the maiden. At nine o'clock the last train through the tunnel started to convey Nell and her companions to the surface of the earth. Twenty minutes later they alighted on the platform where the branch line to New Aberfoyle joins the railway from Dumbarton to Stirling. The night was already dark. From the horizon to the zenith, light vapory clouds hurried through the upper air, driven by a refreshing northwesterly breeze. The day had been lovely, the night promised to be so likewise. On reaching Stirling, Nell and her friends, quitting the train, left the station immediately. Just before them, between high trees, they could see a road which led to the banks of the River Forth. The first physical impression on the girl was the purity of the air inhaled eagerly by her lungs. Breathe it freely, Nell, said James Starr. It is fragrant with all the scents of the open country. What is all that smoke passing over our heads? inquired Nell. Those are clouds, answered Harry, blown along by the westerly wind. Ah, said Nell. How I should like to feel myself carried along in that silent whirl. And what are those shining sparks which glance here and there between rents in the clouds? Those are the stars I have told you about, Nell. So many suns they are, so many centers of worlds like our own, most likely. The constellations became more clearly visible as the wind cleared the clouds from the deep blue of the firmament. Nell gazed upon the myriad stars which sparkled overhead. 
But how is it, she said at length, that if these are suns, my eyes can endure their brightness? My child, replied James Starr, they are indeed suns, but suns at an enormous distance. The nearest of these millions of stars, whose rays can reach us, is Vega, that star in Lyra which you observe near the zenith, and that is fifty thousand millions of leagues distant. Its brightness, therefore, cannot affect your vision. But our own sun, which will rise tomorrow, is only distant thirty-eight millions of leagues, and no human eye can gaze fixedly upon that, for it is brighter than the blaze of any furnace. But come, Nell, come. They pursued their way, James Starr leading the maiden, Harry walking by her side, while Jack Ryan roamed about like a young dog, impatient of the slow pace of his masters. The road was lonely. Nell kept looking at the great trees, whose branches, waving in the wind, made them seem to her like giants gesticulating wildly. The sound of the breeze in the treetops, the deep silence during a lull, the distant line of the horizon which could be discerned when the road passed over open levels, all these things filled her with new sensations and left lasting impressions on her mind. After some time she ceased to ask questions, and her companions respected her silence not wishing to influence by any words of theirs the girl's highly sensitive imagination, but preferring to allow ideas to arise spontaneously in her soul. At about half-past eleven o'clock they gained the banks of the River Forth. There a boat, chartered by James Starr, awaited them. In a few hours it would convey them all to Granton. Nell looked at the clear water which flowed up to her feet, as the waves broke gently on the beach, reflecting the starlight. "'Is this a lake?' said she. No, replied Harry, it is a great river flowing towards the sea, and soon opening so widely as to resemble a gulf. Taste a little of the water in the hollow of your hand, Nell, and you will perceive that it is not sweet like the waters of Lake Malcolm. The maiden bent towards the stream, and, raising a little water to her lips, This is quite salt, said she. Yes, the tide is full. The sea water flows up the river as far as this, answered Harry. Oh, Harry, Harry, exclaimed the maiden. What can that red glow on the horizon be? Is it a forest on fire? No, it is the rising moon now. To be sure that's the moon, cried Jack Ryan, a fine big silver plate which the spirits of air hand round and round the sky to collect the stars in like money. Why, Jack, said the engineer, laughing, I had no idea you could strike out such bold comparisons. Well, but, Mr. Starr, it is a just comparison. Don't you see the stars disappear as the moon passes on? So I suppose they drop into it. What you mean to say, Jack, is that the superior brilliancy of the moon eclipses that of stars of the sixth magnitude, therefore they vanish as she approaches. How beautiful all this is, repeated Nell again and again, with her whole soul in her eyes. But I thought the moon was round. So she is when full, said James Starr. That means when she is just opposite to the sun. But tonight the moon is in the last quarter, shorn of her just proportions, and friend Jack's grand silver plate looks more like a barber's basin. "'Oh, Mr. Starr, what a base comparison!' he exclaimed. "'I was just going to begin a sonnet to the moon, "'but your barber's basin has destroyed all chance of an inspiration.' "'Gradually the moon ascended the heavens. "'Before her light the lingering clouds fell away, "'while stars still sparkled in the west, "'beyond the influence of her radiance. "'Nell gazed in silence on the glorious spectacle. "'The soft silvery light was pleasant to her eyes, "'and her little trembling hand expressed to Harry who clasped it, how deeply she was affected by the scene. "'Let us embark now,' said James Starr. "'We have to get to the top of Arthur's seat before sunrise.' The boat was moored to a post on the bank. A boatman awaited them. Nell and her friends took their seats. The sail was spread. It quickly filled before the northwesterly breeze, and they sped on their way. What a new sensation was this for the maiden! She had been rowed on the waters of Lake Malcolm, but the oar, handled ever so lightly by Harry, always betrayed effort on the part of the oarsman. Now, for the first time, Nell felt herself borne along with a gliding movement, like that of a balloon through the air. The water was smooth as a lake, and Nell reclined in the stern of the boat, enjoying its gentle rocking. Occasionally, the effect of the moonlight on the waters was as though the boat sailed across a glittering silver field. Little wavelets rippled along the banks. It was enchanting. At length Nell was overcome with drowsiness. Her eyelids drooped, her head sank on Harry's shoulder. She slept. Harry, sorry that she would miss any of the beauties of this magnificent night, would have aroused her. Let her sleep, said the engineer. She will better enjoy the novelties of the day after a couple of hours' rest. At two o'clock in the morning the boat reached Granton Pier. Nell awoke. 
"'Have I been asleep?' inquired she. "'No, my child,' said James Starr. "'You've been dreaming that you slept, that's all.' The night continued clear. The moon, riding in mid-heaven, diffused her rays on all sides. In the little port of Granton lay two or three fishing boats. They rocked gently on the waters of the Firth. The wind fell as the dawn approached. The atmosphere, clear of mists, promised one of those fine autumn days so delicious on the seacoast. A soft, transparent film of vapor lay along the horizon. The first sunbeam would dissipate it. To the maiden it exhibited that aspect of the sea which seems to blend it with the sky. Her view was now enlarged, without producing the impression of the boundless infinity of ocean. Harry taking Nell's hand, they followed James Starr and Jack Ryan as they traversed the deserted streets. To Nell, this suburb of the capital appeared only a collection of gloomy dark houses, just like Coaltown, only that the roof was higher and gleamed with small lights. She stepped lightly forward and easily kept pace with Harry. "'Are you not tired, Nell?' asked he, after half an hour's walking. "'No, my feet seem scarcely to touch the earth,' returned she. "'The sky above us seems so high up I feel as if I could take wing and fly.' "'I say, keep hold of her,' cried Jack Ryan. "'Our little Nell is too good to lose.' I feel just as you describe, though, myself, when I have not left the pit for a long time. It is when we no longer experience the oppressive effect of the vaulted rocky roof above Coaltown, said James Starr, that the spacious firmament appears to us like a profound abyss into which we have, as it were, a desire to plunge. Is that what you feel, Nell? Yes, Mr. Starr, it is exactly like that, said Nell. It makes me feel giddy. Ah, you will soon get over that, Nell, said Harry. You will get used to the outer world, and most likely forget all about our dark coal pit. No, Harry, never, said Nell, and she put her hands over her eyes, as though she would recall the remembrance of everything she had lately quitted. Between the silent dwellings of the city, the party passed along Leith Walk, and went round the Calton Hill, where stood, in the light of the grey dawn, the buildings of the observatory and Nelson's monument. By Regent's Bridge and the North Bridge they at last reached the lower extremity of the cannon gate. The town still lay wrapped in slumber. Nell pointed to a large building in the center of an open space, asking, What great confused mass is that? That confused mass, Nell, is the palace of the ancient kings of Scotland. That is Holyrood, where many a sad scene has been enacted. The historian can here invoke many a royal shade, from those of the early Scottish kings to that of the unhappy Mary Stuart, and the French king Charles X. When day breaks, however, Nell, this palace will not look so very gloomy. Holyrood, with its four embattled towers, is not unlike some handsome country house. But let us pursue our way. There, just above the ancient abbey of Holyrood, are the superb cliffs called Salisbury Crags. Arthur's seat rises above them, and that is where we are going. From the summit of Arthur's seat, Nell, your eyes shall behold the sun appear above the horizon seaward. They entered the King's Park. Then, gradually ascending, they passed across the Queen's Drive, a splendid carriageway encircling the hill, which we owe to a few lines in one of Sir Walter Scott's romances. Arthur's seat is in truth only a hill, seven hundred and fifty feet high, which stands alone amid surrounding heights. In less than half an hour, by an easy winding path, James Starr and his party reached the crest of the crouching lion, which, seen from the west, Arthur's seat so much resembles. There all four seated themselves, and James Starr, ever ready with quotations from the great Scottish novelist, simply said, Listen to what is written by Sir Walter Scott in the eighth chapter of The Heart of Midlothian. If I were to choose a spot from which the rising or setting sun could be seen to the greatest possible advantage, it would be from this neighborhood. Now watch, Nell. The sun will soon appear, and for the first time you will contemplate its splendor. The maiden turned her eyes eastward. Harry, keeping close behind her, observed her with anxious interest. Would the first beams of day overpower her feelings? All remained quiet, even Jack Ryan. A faint streak of pale rose tinted the light vapors of the horizon. It was the first ray of light attacking the laggards of the night. Beneath the hill lay the silent city, massed confusedly in the twilight of dawn. Here and there lights twinkled among the houses of the old town. Westward rose many hilltops, soon to be illuminated by tips of fire. Now the distant horizon of the sea became more plainly visible. The scale of colors fell into the order of the solar. Every instant they increased in intensity. Rose color became red. Red became fiery. Daylight dawned. Nell now glanced towards the city, of which the outlines became more distinct. Lofty monuments, slender steeples emerged from the gloom. 
a kind of ashy light was spread abroad. At length one solitary ray struck on the maiden's sight. It was that ray of green which morning or evening is reflected upwards from the sea when the horizon is clear. An instant afterwards Nell turned, and pointing towards a bright prominent point in the new town, Fire! cried she. No, Nell, that is no fire, said Harry. The sun has touched with gold the top of Sir Walter Scott's monument. And indeed the extreme point of the monument blazed like the light of a pharos. It was day. The sun arose. His disk seemed to glitter, as though he indeed emerged from the waters of the sea. Appearing at first very large from the effects of refraction, he contracted as he rose, and assumed the perfectly circular form. Soon no eye could endure the dazzling splendor. It was as though the mouth of a furnace was opened through the sky. Nell closed her eyes, but her eyelids could not exclude the glare, and she pressed her fingers over them. Harry advised her to turn in the opposite direction. Oh, no, said she, my eyes must get used to look at what yours can bear to see. Even through her hands, Nell perceived a rosy light, which became more white as the sun rose above the horizon. As her sight became accustomed to it, her eyelids were raised, and at length her eyes drank in the light of day. The good child knelt down, exclaiming, Oh, Lord God, how beautiful is thy creation! Then she rose and looked around. At her feet extended the panorama of Edinburgh, the clear, distinct lines of streets in the new town, and the irregular mass of houses with their confused network of streets and lanes, which constitutes Aldriki, properly so called. Two heights commanded the entire city, Edinburgh Castle, crowning its huge basaltic rock, and the Calton Hill, bearing on its rounded summit, among other monuments, ruins built to represent those of the Parthenon at Athens. Fine roadways led in all directions from the capital. To the north, the coast of the noble Firth of Forth was indented by a deep bay, in which could be seen the seaport town of Leith, between which and this modern Athens of the north ran a street, straight as that leading to the Piraeus. Beyond the wide Firth could be seen the soft outlines of the county of Fife, while beneath the spectators stretched the yellow sands of Portobello and Newhaven. Nell could not speak. Her lips murmured a word or two indistinctly. She trembled, became giddy, her strength failed her. Overcome by the purity of the air and the sublimity of the scene, she sank fainting into Harry's arms, who, watching her closely, was ready to support her. The youthful maiden, hitherto entombed in the massive depths of the earth, had now obtained an idea of the universe, of the works both of God and of man. She had looked upon town and country, and beyond these, into the immensity of the sea, the infinity of the heavens. End of chapter 14 Recording by Sean Michael Hogan, St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada.